Hey everybody, we'd like to welcome you to the Ewok Podcast. We hope your day's going good. This is the official podcast of the East Wilton Union Church located in Wilton, Maine. And today we're going to hear a message from Robbie Locke, our senior pastor. We hope that it's a blessing to your life and that God uses it to help you walk closer with him. And our prayer is that you would grow closer to him in truth and in love. Well, without further ado, here's Pastor Robbie. All right, this morning we are going to begin a brand new study in the epistle to the Colossians that was written by the Apostle Paul. I just want to suggest to you as we begin this morning that there is one major theme that carries from the beginning of this epistle all the way through to the end. And that is the sufficiency of Christ. So I was thinking about this late last night. If I had had time to go back and redo the slide, I would have added a couple of words. The supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Because that is really, truly the message of the book of Colossians. I want to just pray as we begin this study and ask the Lord as we undertake over the coming weeks to understand Paul's message to a local church that he had never visited, believers that he did not know personally except for their pastor who had visited them, uh, visited Paul. His name was Epaphras, and he had visited him. And so he knew the pastor, but he did not know the church. So he's writing a letter to them, having heard of some concerns And Paul wants to help them in their faith. And so we're just going to pray and ask God to open our minds to the Scriptures. Father, Lord, I come to you truly out of a sense of need. I need your strength, Lord, physically. I need your strength, above all, spiritually. I need your Holy Spirit to control my thinking process and my tongue so that I might be able to proclaim the wonderful words of life. This epistle does have much to say about the gospel and that the center of the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary. Had it not been for who he was and is and for what he did and continues doing, were it not for that, Lord, we would be hopelessly lost today. And so we want to understand, Lord, from this book. And we want to ask your help because, Lord, there are certain parts of this book that are somewhat complicated, particularly when we go through the doctrinal section in chapter 2 when we're talking about false doctrine and how Paul responded to it. We need your wisdom to be able to understand and make application, even, Lord, to our own day. May you use your word May you honor your own name and get all the glory. And we'll thank you, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to give you a little bit of historical background on the city of Colossae. It's had different names down through the years, all similar to Colossae, as you see it there. That is probably one of the older ways of spelling it. In the Bible, it doesn't have the A but in the beginning of the city, or at some point, it had, was spelt this way with the S-A-E at the end. 
It also was spelt prior to that with a K at the beginning rather than the C. So there are different ways in which the name of this city have been spelt down through the years. But I want to give you a little bit of an idea of where it is. It's maybe a little hard for you to see, I'm not sure. But if you'll notice at the top, you see the red arrow that is coming down, and right at the tip there, there's three little red dots. The one on the right-hand side is where Colossae is. Now, if you'll notice in this map, other very familiar places to us from the New Testament are mentioned. You'll see just below, there's Ephesus, and of course, we have the book to the Ephesians. Laodicea, what do we know that church for? That was the lukewarm church, right? That was only about 10 miles away from Colossae. And then down over here, you see Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, and so on. I just wanted to put a map up so that you had a little bit of an idea of where this city was. In this area, there was a lot of volcanic action. In fact, it had been responsible through the years for a lot of destruction that had taken place from the volcanoes. But as a result of the volcanic ash and so on, it actually had very, very fertile land, which was a good thing for the producing of crops, uh, to be able to have good grasslands, to be able to feed the sheep. It was great sheep country. In fact, it was so good in that particular area that Colossae became known for its trade in woolen goods that were made out of the wool of the sheep. Colossae had been a very prosperous and great city at one time, but by the time Paul came on the scene and was writing to this church, and we don't even know if he ever actually got to visit them or not. It was his intention to do so. But by Paul's time, the city had greatly waned in its glory. It was a much smaller city and not as well known as it had been. In fact, Colossae, at a given point, was lost to history. And it was actually believed that Colossae did not exist until the end of the 20th century when the remains of Colossae were discovered in an archaeological find. And that, again, helped to demonstrate that the Word of God does not make mistakes. If the Bible says there was a Colossae, even if men couldn't find Colossae, there was a Colossae, and now they found it. And it demonstrates that God spoke the truth and he was always right. Now, I want to talk to you about the ecclesiastical back background of the Colossian church. Before we get into the text, I just think it's important for us to know a little bit about these people and what they were going through. The first thing I want you to notice is that Paul had never visited this city. The only way he knew about the Colossian church was through the testimony of their pastor. And he is referred to in chapter 1 and verse 7. He's talking back at the end of verse 6 about the grace of God that they had come to know in truth. He's talking about salvation. Then he says, As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So Epaphras was the spiritual leader. He probably was the planter of this particular church. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking to myself, isn't it wonderful that you don't have to be an Apostle Paul to be used of God? 
Isn't it great that you can be an Epaphras, someone who really is not greatly known? He's referred to two or three times in the New Testament in connection with this church and in connection with the service of God. But he's not a well-known man, and yet God was able to take Epaphras and use him for his glory to plant a church in an area where the gospel had not penetrated up until that point. The Lord can use anyone who is available and is surrendered totally to God. You don't have to be a person with the greatest intellect or the greatest power. You don't have to have the greatest education. You need to be a born-again Christian. You need to be someone in whom the Spirit of God dwells, who is our teacher and reveals the truth to us. And you need to be available to God and totally surrender to Him. I tell you, God can do great and mighty things through people who, from a human perspective, are very simple. I'm reading just the last part of the diary of David Brainerd right now who was a missionary in the 1700s to the Indians in New England. God mightily used this young man. He went into the ministry when he was about 25 years of age and went home to be with the Lord when he was 29. He only lived for four years but was mightily used literally to bring thousands of Native Americans to Christ through his work. He was a simple man. He really was. He wasn't a person of the great intellect like a Spurgeon or others like that. I mean, he was a wonderful man of God. He kept a diary, but his writings are very simple and down to earth. But one of the things I learned about him is that he was a man who had a passion for God. And he surrendered himself completely to Almighty God. And he went in amongst the native peoples of this country. And he would go amongst them and they would be involved in their paganism and maybe just have come from one of their Indian dances and all of those sorts of things where they, as he described it, worshipped demons. And then they would come and they would sit under the preaching of the Word of God. And he would talk, and I've been reading just lately about the effectiveness of his messages, how God the Holy Spirit used him, and he would preach, and the Indians would be sobbing and crying out to God in their seats because of such of a sense of their sin and of their lost condition. Some of these Indians would become so overwhelmed that they'd fall back off their seats and they would land, just lay on the floor, and they'd be crying up to God, and he put in his book, in his diary, the Indian words that they used, and what they were saying over and over and over again was, Oh God, have mercy upon my soul. Oh God, have mercy upon my soul. And he just stood there simply preaching the truth of God and the Holy Spirit moved mightily, greatly used this man for the Lord. He died at the age of 29 of consumption. He traveled everywhere on horseback. I noticed that in his, the time of that three and a half, almost four years, he had his donkey stolen twice and his horse stolen one other time. The Lord had to keep giving him a new animal and he'd just go from place to place. He traveled all over. He preached not only to the Indians but also, as he said, to the whites and to the French and, to the, and he would give all of these different groups. But everywhere he went, people were being saved. It just reminded me, you don't have to be great to be great in the kingdom of God. You have to be a servant. 
And when you are a servant surrendered to God, God can use you mightily. So thank God for Epaphras, who was used of the Lord to plant to this church. Secondly, there was a flourishing church in Colossae. This was not a brand new work. This was not just getting off the ground. This church had existed for some time. In fact, had a testimony as an eminent and famous church. Even though the city itself and the area itself had waned in glory, there was a strong uh, gospel church there in that city. Third, though Paul had not planted this church, Paul didn't neglect it either. You know what sometimes we do, which is a very dangerous thing? We become so focused upon our own local church that we forget that there are other good gospel preaching churches out there that God is using mightily for his glory. And even though Paul had never been to this church and he'd never met anyone but the pastor, he had a burden for the church. And you'll notice in 2 Corinthians 11:28, he said, after giving the long list of his sufferings, you remember, where he talked about, you know, being beaten by rods and, 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 and uh, being in the deep, you know, being in the, in the ocean for a whole night and all these sufferings. At the end, he says this, and beside the other things, the sufferings, he said, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for how many? For all the churches. My deep concern for all the churches. He felt a spiritual responsibility to every church that named the name of Christ and proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And I believe, brethren, that in this area there are several churches of different sizes. And we may not agree on every single point of doctrine, but the gospel is being preached in those churches and we need to pray for the blessing of God upon those works. The last thing I want you to notice is that this was a church battling the influx of false doctrine. Now, the theologians and, and commentators have defined it with this terminology, terminology Judeo-Gnosticism. Now, I'm going to talk to you in detail about four major beliefs that they had, okay? I'm going to get to that in a minute. But just understand that there was a Jewish part of the error that was being taught and there was a pagan part of the error which was being taught in the church. And so Paul is writing to them this letter so that he might be able to present to them the truth. The, many of those in the church in Colossae who had given place to the error that was being taught they had developed a religious system that didn't need Jesus. Now, folks, I want to tell you, if you've got a religious system, you don't need Jesus. You've got the wrong religious system. Because without Christ, there's no hope for us whatsoever. Now, what is the purpose of the epistle? I mentioned it at the beginning. To demonstrate, and I would add, the total supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And he focuses on two areas. Christ's sufficiency in salvation. Jesus Christ is all we need to be saved. You don't add to Jesus. You don't add to the gospel. And he's going to make that very, very clear. But he's also sufficient for the Christian life. We began in the Spirit by being saved. We continue in the Spirit. It's absolutely necessary. And Jesus is all that we need. He's been made unto us Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Can you say that today? Jesus is all 
that you need? Now it falls into two areas. First, Paul is going to instruct the saints in holy living through an intimate relationship with Christ. Colossians is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. And I love particularly chapter 3. And I just want to read the first four voices, uh, voices, uh, verses of this chapter to show you the, the perspective that Paul has as he writes to these believers. He says this in Colossians 3.1. If then you were raised with Christ. What does that mean? That's talking about salvation. When we came, we passed from death unto life. We died with Christ and we were raised together with him. That's salvation. If then you were raised with Christ, he said, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. He's saying, listen, you and I need to have priorities as we live in this world, and our priorities need to be Christ's priorities. We need to seek those things which are above. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Have you noticed how easy it is to go through a whole day and come to the end of that day and realize how little have you even thought about spiritual things? He said, listen, you've got to get yourself into this, this mindset that as you go through the day, you will think on things above and not just focus on the things of this earth. He said, why? For you died. We died spiritually with Christ to this world. We died to the flesh. We died to sin. He says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You want to know why you are secure today? Because you are hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. And where is Jesus? He's seated where? We just read it. At the right hand of the throne of God. You can't lose your spiritual position unless Jesus does. So he says, your life is hidden with Christ and God. And I love particularly verse 4 at New Brunswick Bible Institute. The graduating class every year had to choose a class verse. And this was the verse that we chose as a class. And we chose this because of the first several words particularly. Christ is our life. That was our theme as a class. As we went forth, all but two of us of the 33 went into full-time Christian ministry, leaving NBBI that year. And we chose this verse because Christ is our life. He's not just our Lord that we serve, that we, we do things for, but he's our very life. And he says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, when's that going to happen? The rapture. When the trumpet sounds, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now maybe he's talking from the perspective that he knew Jesus wasn't, I mean he could come at any moment, but it was likely it was going to be quite a while before Jesus would come, and in the process Christians would die. What happens to us when we die as a Christian? Our spirit leaves our body, where does it go? Goes to heaven to be with the Lord. You're not going to paradise. Nope. That was Old Testament saints, and Jesus went to paradise with the, with the uh, thief, and then he left paradise and took all the saints out of paradise and took them up to heaven with him when he ascended. Why? Because he had finally paid the price for all their sins, and now they could go to heaven. 
So you're not going to paradise. If, you, if you've been hoping for that, I've got bad news for you. All right? But you got something better. you got heaven. That's where the Lord is. We're going to go. And when he appears, he will bring us with him. I mean, I don't know when I'm going to die. I hope it won't be anytime soon. But then again, I wouldn't mind if it was soon to be with Jesus, right? I mean, it's kind of like Paul said, I, I have this battle going on inside me. He says, I'd rather depart to be with Christ, but I'll stick around for your benefit. I'll be here to serve the Lord, you know. But what I love about this is when he appears, we'll appear with him in glory. When he comes in the rapture, he's going to bring the spirits of those who have died in Christ and their spirits have gone to heaven. He's going to bring their spirits back. The bodies come out of the grave. They're reunited. And then we go back to heaven to be with the Lord for the tribulation period up in heaven. And then we come back with him to rule and to reign in glory for the millennial kingdom. We have a, we have a bright future, folks. Amen, brother. Oh, we do. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you shall also appear with him in glory. Is it any wonder that you and I ought to have our minds turned toward spiritual things, toward heavenly things, and not just the things that are on this earth? The second thing he wants to do, and this is very important, he wants to correct false doctrine that was creeping into the church. And while there are many doctrines that they believed, the summary is that they denied the sufficiency of Christ in salvation and sanctification. They said, what Jesus did is not enough. You need more. You need other things. If you want to have a relationship with God, for instance, you need to worship angels. They believed that angels were mediators between people and God. Many in Colossae were worshipers of the sun. They had all of these different things that they believed that you needed to do. That Jesus was not enough. But Paul is writing this letter with this big message. Jesus Christ is sufficient. And we need to stand on his sufficiency today. Let me just show you. Oops, I just skipped it here. Colossians 2, 8 to 10. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of of men. He said, listen, they're introducing human philosophy into the church and are not thinking biblically. According to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Now, folks, if you had to choose between the philosophy of the world and the truth of Christ, what would you pick? Right? We'd, we'd pick the latter. But they were embracing the philosophies of the world and not Christ. Why? He says in verse 9, and, and to me, verses 9 and 10 are probably the key verses of the entire epistle. He says, in him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What that means, all that God is, all that God was, all that God will be, was in Jesus Christ in human form. He was fully God and fully man. All the fullness of God is in him bodily. And then, verse 10, this is how it affects us. Because we died with him, we rose with him, we are hid with Christ in God. So what? You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Everything we need we have in Christ. Now, we don't have the complete and full experience in a practical way. 
I still struggle with sin. I still struggle with issues in my life. But through Christ, one day I know I'm going to be in the Lord's presence. I'm going to be fully like the Lord Jesus. And the battles will be over. Praise God, that's true. Now, what is the false doctrine? And I want to just go through this really, really quickly with you. Judeo-Gnosticism. Now, the Judaism part co covers several issues that are brought up in chapter 2. They talk about the observance of festivals and Sabbaths and new moons. That immediately makes us think about Judaism. They were making distinctions between certain kinds of meats that could be eaten, certain kinds of food you could eat and others you couldn't, through certain things you could drink and others that you could not drink. You'll notice that in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. You know what he's saying? He's saying there are people who will want to control you through legalism. They will set up a whole list of do's and don'ts and say, this is what you can eat, and this is what you can't eat. This is what you can drink and what you can't drink. This is what you do, and this is what you can't do. And they set up rules and regulations. I remember years ago when I became a member of a local church for the first time, I was 14 years old. So that was a day or two ago. And I was 14, and it was a Christian and Missionary Alliance church, which is kind of like a Baptist church, but they do have some, a couple of doctrines that we would, I don't embrace. They believe that you can lose your salvation for one, and they also believed uh, in what they call healing in the atonement, which means that uh, you never have to be sick because Jesus died not only for your sins, he di died for your illnesses. And so if you had faith, you didn't need to take an aspirin. God would heal your headache if you asked him. And if you took an aspirin, it's because you didn't have faith. Well, I don't, I don't believe that. But my, my point is, my point is, they preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when I became a member, I got saved when I was 12 and a half. I got baptized at 14. And, and, and in our church there, once you got uh, baptized, you were brought into the membership of the church officially. And so I remember going and receiving a copy of the church constitution great big old thick document, and one of the first things they had was a list of do's and don'ts. If you were going to be a member of this church, you couldn't do this, and you couldn't do that, and you couldn't do, it was all couldn't do's. It was more do nots than it was do's. And you know what, folks? I'm not saying that all of those principles were unbiblical, but what I am saying to you is this. When you put a ritualistic system of rules and regulations as the basis of what determines spirituality, you are in trouble. That is called legalism. I had a question that was asked of me this week on, in my Spanish ministry, you know, and the question was this, you know, is smoking cigarettes condemned in the Bible? Well, when you talk about that, I have to say, well, there are no cigarettes in the Bible. That's right, isn't it? I mean, go, go like this if you know that's right, right? There's no, there's no verse that says, thou shalt not smoke cans, or whatever they're called. I don't know. I don't know anything about cigarettes. So, so there's no verse about that. And so the question becomes, you know, if somebody smokes, does that mean they're a sinner? That they're far from God? And, and you know, because I want to tell you, when I was 14, that's the way people thought. 
You were one of the sinners. You were one of the carnal people if you smoked. Now, do I, am I here today to promote smoking? No, I'm not here to promote smoking. But I'm also not here to promote overeating either. You say, well, why do you bring that up? Because it's just as bad for your body to overeat as it is to smoke cigarettes. So if someone said to me, why shouldn't I smoke cigarettes? I'd say, well, to me, the only biblical principle I can give you is our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to take care of our body. And if we know something we do is going to hurt our body, then we ought not do it. We should avoid it. But I want to say this, and, and you know, I, some people don't like me talking like this, but folks, I want to tell you, there are some people who smoke who in other areas of their lives are much more spiritual than some people who don't smoke. So I think when we have rules and regulations by which we determine a person's spirituality, you know what the Bible says determines your spirituality? Are you like Christ or not? Do you have the character of Christ manifested in you? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. He says, what are you like, not what are you doing? So we need to first look at our spiritual life. And their danger was to look at the outward things, what you eat, what you drink, regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. And notice he says, let no one do what? Judge you. In other words, if you do this, you're wrong. Why? Because I have a rule. You say, oh, do we do that today? Hmm. You know what? I know some Christians who go out of their way every Halloween to condemn the Christian parents who let their kids go out trick-or-treating. They do. Because it's about witches and demons and you shouldn't have your kids involved. You don't have to dress your kids up like witches and demons. Right? And do you think kids are going to say, oh, I'm looking for a demon tonight. Do you think that's what the kid? No, the kids are saying, Reese's peanut butter cops. <laughs> yeah. But because it's connected to a holiday where it talks about ghosts and blah, 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 there are Christians who will say, if you let your children do that, you're not walking with God. You're not a spiritual Christian. I want to tell you something, folks. That is between you and God, what you do with your children, and don't let anyone judge you. If you don't do it, don't do it to the Lord. If you do do it, do it to the Lord. But just leave it there. Don't impose your personal position on someone else when the Bible never talks about it. This is what they were doing. They're saying, oh, you have to keep this festival, this new moon. And if not, you're in trouble. So that was part of it, Judaism. But not only was that, the other theme that comes out in Colossians again and again is circumcision. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. What in the world is that? Well, that's not Jewish circumcision, because Jewish circumcision was made with hands, right? But he says, this is a circumcision made without hands, 
by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. You see, for the Jews, you cut the physical flesh in circumcision. But the circumcision of Christ is when you put off the deeds of the body. You put off the body of the sins of the flesh, as you see there in verse 11, by the circumcision of Christ. See, through Christ, you're cut off from the world. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. He's talking about spiritual things. And so here's one of their beliefs was about issues dealing with Judaism. But then there was the Gnosticism. And there are four major truths. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff. But there are four major things I want you to notice. First of all, self-imposed humility. What we might describe as self-abasement. It is the putting of oneself down. Colossians 2.18, Paul writes, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in what kind of humility? False humility. Have you ever met someone who had false humility? You know what they were basically saying? Oh, I'm just a nobody. I'm not worth anything. I can't do anything. I'm just me. Poor me. And yet, what do they want you to do? What they want you to do is to pat them on the back and say, Oh, no, that's not true. You are wonderful. And then we go, Oh, okay, thanks. That's false humility. You know what it is, folks? It is drawing attention to yourself. I'm sorry. It is humbling yourself in order to draw attention to yourself. That's different than what true humility is. True humility means you disappear in the sense in which you don't bring attention to yourself. It's all about Christ. It's all about the glory of God. It's not about you. It's not to get the applause of men. It's not to get people to pat you on the back. But they wanted their religion to be seen by everybody. But it was a false humility. And it says that they were delighting in it. Gives a little bit of an idea of what their motivation was. The second thing I want you to see was the worship of angels and of the sun. Colossians 2.18, it says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and what? Worship of angels. Now, folks, we know that angels exist. They are the ministers of God to accomplish His will. They are ministers of God that also minister to us. There are guardian angels. There are ministers that uh, angels that do things on behalf of the people of God. We don't always see that in the Bible. There are a few examples, but we don't aren't always aware. There's a scripture, and I can't remember if it's Hebrews. I think maybe where it says that uh, be careful how you treat strangers, because uh, you may, by entertaining a stranger in your home tonight, actually have entertained an angel. In other words, the Lord sent someone to a you know an angel in a human form, and and they came, and you put them up for the night, and fed them a meal, and says you know make sure and treat strangers good, because you never know when one of those might be an angel. So we believe in angels. 
They have a purpose. But any angel that was ever worshipped, you know what their immediate response was? They rejected that worship because they knew that worship belonged to God and to God alone. The Gnostics believed that angels were mediators who acted on behalf of human beings with God. What they denied was this truth. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that's an angel. Is that what it says? Is that what that verse says? No, it says, who is it? It's the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the mediator between us and God, not angels. So in other words, they were saying, if you want to get saved, you need the help of angels. And Paul's message is, you don't need angels to get saved. You need to believe the gospel. Obey the gospel and trust Christ and you'll be saved. Many Colossians were sun worshipers. They would get up at daybreak and they would go out and they would offer certain prayers to the sun every single morning. One of the other things that they did, they would bury all polluting substances. And by that I mean things that are left over in the bathroom <laughs> or rubbish and trash. They always would dig holes and put it below the ground. Why? They didn't want to offend the rays of the sun god to touch down upon those evil things. And so these were some of the beliefs of the Gnostics. Thirdly, there were two extremes of practice. One is rigid asceticism, which is the harsh treatment of the body. They believed that anything material is evil. That lamp right here is evil because it's material. This book is evil because it's material. Your body is evil because it's material. It's only your spirit that can be holy. It's only your spirit that can be acceptable to God. So anything physical is evil and it ought to be avoided. Now, when you believe that, folks, it's going to change the way you live your life, right? If everything you look at, I mean, the seat that you're sitting on, you're sitting on evil, according to them, okay? The harsh treatment of the body, and I put this definition, asceticism is the religious doctrine that one can reach a higher spiritual state by rigorous self-discipline and self-denial. It's kind of what the monks did in the monasteries years ago and the, and, and the nuns did in the, in the monasteries, right? They'd go and they'd shut themselves off from the world. And they might go days and days and days and days and not speak a single word nor talk to anyone or, and they might be shut up in their rooms and they would beat themselves with lashes and they would do all these kinds of things because they believed that by shutting themselves off from the evil material world that somehow that would bring them closer to God. This was a very common belief of the Gnostics. Let me give you some examples. Matter is evil, so all contact with matter should be kept to a minimum. So they had a spare diet. You could only eat bread and vegetables. Animal flesh was forbidden. It was considered particularly sinful, even though bread and vegetables were too. But you had to eat to survive, and so bread and vegetables is all that was allowed. 
abstinence from marriage. They would tell people not to get married. And the reason they should not get married is because they believed that sexual desire was sinful. The Bible teaches that sex within marriage is the only time that it's holy in the eyes of God. Between a man and a woman. But they said, no, you can't get married at all because that will lead you to having physical relations. And that's wicked and sinful. You've got to deny your body's cravings. And so how did they propagate? They actually adopted children. And that's how they would continue on their families. They condemned all natural cravings of the body. If you felt hungry, anyone ever feel hungry? Anyone feel hungry right now? Anyone says, preacher, stop preaching so I can go home and have lunch? No, come on. I knew Royal. I knew you'd do it to me. But they believed that when you felt hunger in your stomach, that was an evidence of how evil you were. And sexual desires. If you had any, I mean, if, can, 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 can you imagine this, young fella? Just see a pretty girl and say, well, that's sinful because you see a pretty girl. I don't know, I see a pretty girl and said, I think the Lord did a good job. And, uh, you know, it, it, you're just looking at me. I mean, it, God does a good job, doesn't he? He does. Listen, folks, they condemned anything that was a craving in the body. Anointing of the body with oil so necessary in hot climates was strictly forbidden. This was to help to preserve your flesh nice and, and uh, moist and so that it wouldn't dry out and crack and you'd get sick and so on. But they were strictly forbidden to do any of those things. And last of all, and this was very important in their belief system, they did not believe in the resurrection of the physical body. If the physical body is evil, why in the world would God give you another body if the first one was already so wicked, why would he give you another one? Well, we know from the Bible that the, the body we're going to get is different from the one we have now. Amen? It's not going to be influenced by sin. It's going to be a glorified, perfect body in which we can glorify God to the greatest degree. So that was one extreme. It said matter is evil, so avoid it like the plague. Here's the other extreme, unrestrained license. And here was their argument. They said matter's evil, but it's everywhere. You can't avoid it, so have a lot of fun. If it feels good, do it. By the way, do you hear any of these kind of philosophies in the world today? Don't give matter a thought. Give in to every impulse. That was the other extreme. So you either denied everything or you went for everything. That was the way the Gnostics lived their lives. And there's one more thing. Oh, matter was evil and everywhere, and therefore it could not be avoided. So if it can't be avoided, don't try. Enjoy it. So the final thing, this is the fourth thing. A superior wisdom. A superior wisdom. Now, the Greek word for knowledge is the word gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S. This is the very common word speaking about, and it can be knowledge in many different contexts, but certainly it refers to the knowledge of God, Gnosis. But these, and they call them Gnostics based upon this particular word that they used from the Greek, they 
kind of did a play on words. And what they said was, certain people, and it's only a few, a certain select group of people have received a higher, superior knowledge from God. So they said, it's not gnosis, which is just knowledge in general. It is epinosis. It is a higher, superior knowledge. But when Paul comes along, he did there, like he did in many other places, he would take words that had a certain meaning in the culture, he would take that word and give it a new meaning. And that's what he did with the word epinosis. And he said, epinosis is not just this general knowledge that's a higher superior knowledge. It is the knowledge of God which God gives to his people. And it's higher and more superior than any other knowledge in the universe. Colossians 1.9, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge, that's the word epinosis, filled with the higher, greater knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What he wanted them to realize was that the knowledge which God gives is a knowledge that is higher than the knowledge of this world in which we live. So there were a select few people who had a monopoly on this supposed superior wisdom. To them, salvation could only be attained through that superior wisdom. As a result, very few people truly got saved. And if you were not one of the fortunate few, you were in trouble. Now, that is the introduction to this book. I just wanted to give you a background on the place, what it's like there, and then also particularly to focus upon the purpose of the book, which is to emphasize the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in the areas of both salvation and sanctification. And then to talk about both the Jewish error and the Gnostic error that was being promoted in the Colossian church and that had confused many believers. And so Paul writes to them to be able to correct these things. So when we get particularly to chapter 2, we're going to have to talk about this stuff in a lot more detail. And we will do that based upon the scriptural passages. Now I have five minutes, or at least on my clock I do. So I'm going to just start, and I am going to begin in Colossians chapter 1, the exposition of this book. The inscription of the epistle is chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And in those verses we see an apostolic greeting. Let me just read the two verses for you. Colossians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Just to give you encouragement in your hearts, that's all I'm going to preach on now. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And then I'm going to stop. I thought I'd hear an amen to that. Okay. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that this is a letter. We call it an epistle because it's a pretty long letter. 
but it is a letter written to the church, to the believers. It was sent through Epaphras, who was the pastor visiting Paul. It was sent back to the church in Colossae with instructions. In that time, when they wrote a letter, they did it very different than the way we do a letter today. When we do a letter today, we begin by addressing the letter to whoever's receiving it, right? Dear John. And then there's followed after that some sort of initial greeting. Then there's the body of the letter, and at the end, what do we do? We sign our names so that they know who wrote the letter. That's the way we do it. But in Paul's day, they did the exact opposite. They started with the author. So that the first word you read would be the name of the person who sent the letter. So right away, you don't have to look at the end to see who it's coming from. So he says, Paul. And he identifies Timotheus as well. He's called Timotheus at times. He's named Timothy. But what I want you to see is there's a personal introduction then he addresses the recipients. He talks about those in Colossae. Then there's a little bit of a brief greeting, grace and peace. And we'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. Then Paul would divide his letters into two sections. The first half would be doctrinal. The second half would be practical. That's exactly what he does here. And then once he's done with the main body of the letter, many times he will have final, uh, you know, um, saying goodbye. He'll mention maybe special people from the area that he knows or give some instruction to individuals. And then he will close out the book. And that's the way they wrote letters back at that time. But I want you to see with me very quickly just three little thoughts here. Number one, the servant. Who is the servant? Well, it begins with the word Paul. Now, it's interesting that in most of the epistles, he uses the word bond slave to describe himself, but he doesn't do that here. And the thought has been, why? I think part of the reason that he begins and just says Paul the apostle is because he has to correct some pretty tough things that they have to deal with, and he's beginning by saying, I have the authority to write this letter as an apostle of the Lord. But I think there's another reason, and it has to do with the meaning of names. You know that in the Bible, names have a significant meaning and often tell a lot about the person. Do you know what Paul means? Paul means little. Isn't that interesting? Paul means little. What was his name before he was called Paul? His name was Saul. You know what Saul means? Asked for or demanded. Asked for or demanded. You remember that when he was Saul, he was a strong Jewish religious leader. He said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. There was no Jewish person like him. <laughs> and he was the persecutor of the church. And he was sought for, he was demanded for the things that he did, persecuting the church particularly. But then he gets saved and he receives a new name. And the Lord says, Saul, you may have been asked for and demanded by the wicked world, but he says, in my eyes, Paul, you're just what? You're little. You're little. You know what I think the Lord wanted to do for Paul? He wanted the Paul who thought himself so great and so religious and so high, he wanted to humble him as a man of God. 
So he gave him a name that every time they called his name, he would be reminded of what he was. Hey, little, come over here. Come on, little. You know, we have a tendency to exalt, to exalt the Apostle Paul, right? We use phrases like, the greatest Christian who ever lived. We use phrases like, the greatest missionary who ever lived. But what did Paul say? He says, I'm the greatest of sinners. He knew what he was. We exalt Paul, but God humbled him. The greatly demanded Saul was not much in God's eyes until he became the little servant Paul. <laughs> and folks, I want to just suggest to you today that God greatly uses men and women of humility who seek God's glory alone. So my question to you is, what kind of man or what kind of woman are you today? Are you high up in your own eyes? Or are you just little? Are you humble? You say, I know that apart from Jesus, I'm nothing. Apart from Christ, I'm nothing. I'm going to skip that. The service. Paul said he was an apostle of Christ by the will of God. What is an apostle? It's one who is sent with credentials as the representative of another. Now, I'm talking about the official idea of one of the 12 apostles and Paul. They had credentials. In 2 Corinthians, and I didn't have the verse up here, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, the signs of an apostle have been done in your midst. Then he says, signs and wonders and miracles have taken place. And you will probably remember that when Jesus called the 12 apostles to be able to follow him, he not only called them to preach and teach, but he gave them power to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to even raise the dead as time went on. And Paul said, the signs of an apostle have been done in your midst. You know I'm one of the Lord's apostles because the signs have accompanied my ministry as one of the apostles. So he was a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice he also says, by the will of who? The will of God. Now here again, remember, Paul is about to confront all kinds of error in this church. And if they will not acknowledge his apostleship, they will not listen to his admonitions. And while we do not have apostles today, I want to suggest to you that the Word of God itself carries that very authority today. And you and I, when we read this book, must submit to it because it carries the very authority of God. And then lastly, I know, the servant's assistant, Timothy. Timothy means honored of God or valued of God. I was thinking about this. Paul, the great apostle, is called Little. And Timothy, the young fella, who he calls our brother, just meaning he's a believer, young believer, inexperienced. But Timothy's name is what? Honored, valued of God. You know what I was thinking? Paul needed to be humbled, but Timothy needed to be encouraged. The Lord knows what you need. He knows what I need. 
He knows if he has to work on us so that we humble ourselves, and he knows if we need that encouragement. Remember how many times Paul would write to Timothy and say, Timothy, don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be prepared to suffer. It's going to be hard, but you can do it. Because it seems like there were times when Timothy wanted to quit. He wanted to give up. And so maybe, I don't know, but I'm just thinking, Paul, the big Paul, the great Saul, right? Paul, you're just little. Remember, remember what you are. Without me, you're nothing. And then Timothy, who had doubts about himself and questions and was full of fear, the Lord says, you're honored. You're valued by God. Aren't you glad that the Lord loves you and me that way today? We know four things about Timothy, and I'll just say them for you quickly. He was a child of godly heritage. He had a grandmother and a mother who loved God. They would have brought him up in a knowledge of the Scripture which prepared him to receive the gospel when Paul came along because he's also known as Paul's son in the faith. In 1 Timothy 1-2, Paul's letter to Timothy says, To Timothy, a true son in the faith. Some suggest that when it came to his conversion that Paul was responsible for bringing Timothy to the Lord. He had the background in Judaism and the knowledge of Scripture, but when Paul came along with the gospel, that's when Timothy came to Christ. But if he was not a literal spiritual son in the fact that he had led him to Christ, at least in a spiritual sense, Paul was like a father to him. He was ordained as a minister of the gospel. 1 Timothy 4.14 Do not neglect the gift that is in you which was given to you by prophecy with a laying on of the hands of the eldership or the presbytery. What he's basically saying is, Timothy, remember that group of men who examined you, who laid their hands upon you and ordained you to the ministry. And folks, this is really, really important. Recognition I'm sorry, ordination is a recognition of the calling of God upon a man's life. But the laying on of hands is to identify with that man and his ministry and say, even as we recognize God has called you, we will stand with you in the years to come as you serve our God. And then the last thing, and this is truly the last thing, he was a co-sufferer with Paul in the afflictions of the gospel. In 2 Timothy 1.8, it says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. As Paul invites Timothy to work with him in ministry, he says, Timothy, I've got news for you. We won't just be preaching. We won't just be teaching. We'll also be suffering. And you need to be prepared to do that because it will cost you to follow Jesus and to do his will. So this Timotheus was, at this point, seems a fairly young believer. Do you know he later became the great pastor for many years of the church in Ephesus and was mightily used of God down through the years. We, of course, don't have it in the Bible, but history tells us of the great accomplishments of Timothy. He became something that when Paul is writing here, he wasn't fully there yet. He was, he was a brother. He was a young believer, and he was just kind of getting involved in ministry. But he became a mighty, mighty man of God, and I believe in large part through the influence of the Apostle Paul in his life, showing him how to live for God and how to serve the Lord, even in the face of persecution. 
So typically, your pastor preaches a whole message and we finish one verse. But that includes the introduction. But folks, I want to tell you, we need to be all those men. We need to be little. We need to be humbled. We really do. We need to be a faithful servant of Epaphras who was available to God and totally surrendered. We need to be a Timotheus. One who is weak in and of himself, but great in God. We need to see our relationship to the Lord and how much we need him. Well, we're just beginning, but I'm excited. I love the book of Colossians, and I pray that the Lord will have much to teach us in the coming weeks and months as Jesus tarries from this wonderful epistle. Let's just bow for prayer. Father, we are grateful that we can be in your house today and open the Word of God and turn to a book that was written so long ago and yet is so pertinent to our lives today. There is much, Lord, that we're going to need to learn in the days to come. There's much that we need to understand. There will be some complicated verses to interpret in the light of the rest of Scripture. There will be some wonderful verses that challenge us about seeking those things which are above and not the things that are on the earth. Lord, we're going to think about Jesus coming. <laughs> one day we're going to see him, and one day we're going to be like him. We'll not only be with him, we're going to be like him. And we look forward to that day, Lord. Help us to be faithful, to be Paul's, Epaphras, and Timothy's that can bring glory to your name. Dismiss us now with your blessing, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And this has been the Ewok Podcast with Pastor Robbie Locke. We hope it's been challenging and exuberating and uplifting in your life as it has mine. We hope it helps you walk closer with God and understand Him better and the truth He's laid out for us in His Word. If you've really enjoyed this sermon or it's had a great impact upon your life, leave us an email or go to our Facebook page or our website and just leave a comment that we might know exactly how it's impacted you. It's very uplifting for us to see those things, for it helps us to push forward to continue doing these. Well, that's all I got for time. Until next week, God bless.